0: You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Well, it is easy to overlook things that are small, is it not? It is easy to underestimate people that appear to lack potential. Has that ever happened to you? Someone puts you in a box, perhaps even with good intent, and says, here is the limit of your potential. We might shrug those moments off thinking they cast no long shadows. Yet for me, the memory of people stating that my personal goals were oversized, those statements are still etched in my memory. I carry no anger or no bitterness, yet I'm surprised at how vivid those conversations remain and that I've never forgotten them. Now, being overlooked or minimized can create despondency or it can create a fight back. A few weeks ago, I cited lyrics from the country singer Travis Meadows. His song, Underdogs, is an anthem to those who've been overlooked, In one phrase, and I don't believe I mentioned this previously, he sings about the resiliency that builds in those who've been discounted. He sings, you'll be surprised at the punch we take. We bend, we bruise, but we never break. Now also, as I thought about this theme, another favorite came back to my mind, a song called Little People from Les Miserables sung by the youngest and smallest member of the student revolution, Gavroche. This is the first stanza. They laugh at me, these fellows, just because I am small. They laugh at me because I'm not 100 feet tall. I tell them there's a lot to learn from down here on the ground. The world is big, but little people turn it around. A worm can roll a stone. Right? A bee can sting a bear. A fly can fly around Versailles, cause flies don't care. A sparrow in a hut can make a happy home. A flea can bite the bottom of the Pope in Rome. Right? I repeat. A flea can bite the bottom of the Pope in Rome. Next stands a Goliath was a bruiser who was as tall as the sky. But David threw a right and gave him one in the eye. I've never read the Bible, but I know that it's true. It only goes to show you what little people can do. When Les Mis was wildly popular, we listened to it all the time in our giant red family van on a CD. Our kids were younger then, and they learned all the songs, memorized them, knew them by heart. Our youngest, the baby at age two, could join Gavroche and sang this song word for word, pumping his fists. The only problem was the use of a mild swear word in a stanza that I did not read this morning. But underestimating little people is a human storyline. Something stirs the heart when small is big. And Jesus himself spoke of this. Turn to page 872 in Luke chapter 13. We are in the middle, or in the midst of a section of two chapters that comprise a unit within Luke, chapters 12 and 13. And again, the background is important. Jesus is near the end of his ministry. The cross is near. Rejection from his own people is near. And Jesus foresees a judgment to come. And we heard of that judgment last week, and we'll hear more of that judgment next week, And we'll also see the tears that it evokes and the great sorrow that it evokes in Jesus' heart. But in the middle of these warnings, in a small, stunning interlude, Jesus acts and speaks about the power of His kingdom and the inevitability or the certainty of its success. At this juncture, with so much on the line, There are truths He wanted His disciples to know, to discern. And these truths require discerning because they're counterintuitive. And these truths remain relevant for us. So will you stand as I read our section today, Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. Again, page 872, if you have this Bible. Let's read. Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said all these things. As he said all these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is God's word. Go ahead and take a seat. The outline this morning from this text is the power of His kingdom, number one. Number two, the inevitability of its success. And then number three, what difference does it make to us? So first, the power of His kingdom. Back in Luke chapter 6, we worked through other Sabbath controversies, and there's more to come. We worked through the legalism of the Pharisees and how Jesus recast the Sabbath to what it was meant to be. I don't want to repeat all that this morning. You can access that message and really all of our messages on our website. And I'm not sure it's the focus of this story. And the reason I think that is because Luke attaches these two parables to the healing of this woman. And at first glance, I wonder if you felt this, it seemed random. What does a mustard seed and what does leaven have to do with her healing? Because of the proximity of these two parables, I believe in part that the purpose of this healing, besides compassion towards this poor woman, is about an aggressive assault towards a hostile kingdom. A kingdom that represents the persons and the institutions and the entities that resist God. The entities that are arrayed against his purposes, Jesus ascribes leadership of this hostile kingdom to the person of Satan. Not merely an abstraction of evil, but a being with vast power and resources. Now, for evidence of this, look at the prominent role Satan plays in our story. In verse 16, Jesus says, Satan is the source of this woman's suffering. And in verse 11, Luke tells us she has a disabling spirit. How exactly is Satan the source of her suffering? Does Jesus mean it in a general way? Sort of a big picture explanation of why suffering exists. Is it a way of saying that Satan is a primary source of evil and human suffering from abuse to wars to conflicts to disease? And Is she suffering because we all suffer the effects of living in a world impacted by human sin and the existence of evil? Or does he mean it specifically to her that this woman is inhabited by an evil spirit, a spirit that has caused the bones of her spine to fuse into a rigid mass? Now, verse 11 might make us think that this is specific to her, my latter explanation. And yet when Jesus touches and heals her, there is no record of any demon leaving her as if in an exorcism. And that is something we've come to expect in the gospel narratives dealing with such scenarios. Well, here's the bottom line. I am posing a question That cannot be answered. There are more details we would like to know. But Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does not give them to us. We can only firmly conclude that somehow the source of her suffering is identified as Satan. Now something else stands out, and I wondered if you noticed it. It is the theme of freedom. Look at verse 12. Woman, you are set free from your disability. Verse 16. Should not this woman who has been bound be set free on the Sabbath day? Even the picture Jesus uses to rebuke the synagogue leader points to freedom. Look at verse 15. He here uses a very similar word when he describes what we do to an ox or a donkey when it needs to be watered. We untie it. We loosen it. This woman is being set free from chronic physical pain. I've never experienced that, but many of you have. Chronic physical pain. Her condition may have even made normal breathing difficult, unable to ever take a deep breath. She is being set free to take in a full dose of oxygen. But by centering this healing on freedom, by pointing to Satan as the source of her suffering, Jesus is indicating there is more to this than just healing the physical parts of her body. He is more significantly setting her free from the anxieties and the fears that plague human existence. Her bent over body, the chronic pain, fighting for every breath, pictures for us the human condition, the way we are on the inside, bent over in pain, suffocating, controlled by a destructive power greater than us. A feeling of helplessness. To go a little deeper, to connect this theme to Jesus' ministry, let's go back to the very beginning when Jesus announced his ministry. Turn back to Luke chapter 4, a few pages earlier. Luke chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus is inaugurating his ministry, and he says these words, quoting the prophets. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Freedom from oppression, freedom from a destructive power, greater than us this is what jesus came proclaiming and demonstrating the year of the lord's favor that may well indeed be a reference to the year of jubilee it certainly fits the context the year of jubilee was set forth in the book of deuteronomy in old testament law And what it dictated or stipulated was a restoration in the land of Israel to be done every 50 years when land was returned to its original owner, when debts were released, and when slaves were set free. Now more evidence that Jesus has spiritual freedom in mind here, more evidence is what he calls her. Did you pick that up? Luke, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Luke, who has such a heart for the marginalized, including women in this culture, by the Holy Spirit, he doesn't miss this detail. Jesus gives her a precious name, a dignified title, a daughter of Abraham. She is a fully vested member of the covenant people of God. You see, Jesus perceives in all of this what we often miss what those of us living in the West often fail to recognize, and that is there is a cosmic conflict surrounding us. The conflict is as real as anything you can see, taste, or touch. Much of the rest of the world, having not soaked in the assumptions of the Enlightenment, still recognize and still take seriously the presence and the power of evil in our world and its power to cause suffering and to cause harm. Now, the Bible affirms this cosmic conflict that Jesus has identified in this passage. Both the authority Satan exercises in our world, and unless we have the power of God, our captivity to Him. As self-sufficient Americans, right? As self-reliant Americans... We believe we are 100% free to make our own choices. We believe we are in complete control of our rationality. Yet, are we without the power of God? In relation to evil's influence and our ability to be in total control of ourselves, I would urge us to think carefully about the meaning of passages like this. Ephesians chapter 2 Verses 1-4. through And in this passage, Paul is describing to these Ephesians believers their condition, their spiritual condition, before they came to Christ. He writes this, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is, at spirit, he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way. Following the passionate desire and inclinations of our sinful nature, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Look at another one: Second 2 Corinthians 4.4. Reading out of the New Living Translation. It says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. And finally, the night of his Passover, Jesus said to his intimate friends, John fourteen thirty, I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches, though he has no power over me. So I asked the question again, without Christ, how free are we really? Before I came to Jesus, I can still remember the feeling of powerlessness over certain emotions and certain behaviors. And yet I thought I was totally free. I thought I was completely in control. And And wasn't the ancient philosopher, didn't he maybe see something of this? Even in pre-biblical days when Plato described humanity like a man in a cave. The man in the cave is facing a wall with his back to the outside world, a world he's never seen. And he thinks he's totally free, but he's actually in chains. And he's unable to move his head. He can only look straight forward. And he's only able to see shadows things on the wall in a shadow form and he thinks he has seen all there is that's what's become real to him yet he has only seen shadows there is an entire reality that he is blind to you see the descriptions that the biblical writers give to satan the god of this world the ruler of this world the commander of the power of the unseen world And finally, one more piece of biblical evidence. When Satan tempted Jesus, he promised him the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down and worship him. He had the authority to give Jesus the world. All these descriptions point to a truth that when humanity sinned, the cosmos was disrupted, rebellion became part of our nature, and Satan exercised the power in shaping the course of human history the world is held spiritually by an enemy force satan through the power of sin has rendered human beings and humanity powerless spiritually he is the source he is the source of so much suffering conflict poverty racism disease and war Now let me step back for a moment, physically and figuratively. Let me step back for a moment. Some of you may be thinking this. I know, I know, I'm not holding in balance this morning the relationship between our responsibility and Satan's responsibility. And if we were in a classroom setting with more time, I would tease that out. But we so often diminish the influence of personal evil in our world. And this is worth emphasizing this morning, and if for no other reason, it is woven into this gospel story. A cosmic battle Jesus saw and that Paul attests to. And getting back to our story now, winding this back to our story, a woman, a synagogue leader, an amazed crowd. This is my point. I think this is what Luke wants us to understand. It was Satan's kingdom Jesus was assaulting and exercising power over. It was Satan's kingdom Jesus was taking back as his rightful owner, as he is the rightful owner. Maybe you've not understood it. We sang it last week, but this is the meaning of the lyrics of the famous carol, Joy to the World, in the third stanza. No more let thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. This is the language of Jesus taking back what's his. Bringing blessing where sin has caused sorrow, and bringing beauty and goodness where thorns have prevented it. This is the power of the kingdom. And so now we can make sense of where Jesus goes next. How these seemingly unconnected sections fit together. In verse 17, if you want to look at that, to tether yourself there, the crowds marvel at what Jesus has done. Must have just made that synagogue ruler just all the more. If you can imagine him. And Jesus is saying yes to the crowds. Yes. What you're feeling right now is not some fairy tale optimism. What you're feeling right now is more than the warm fuzzies of a Hallmark Christmas movie because her healing is a sign of the coming kingdom and it will not be stopped. This is the power of His kingdom. And the second point is the inevitability of its success. Now, if you're watching your clock, we obviously won't spend as much time on this second point. It's important for you to realize that as Jesus was teaching about the kingdom, so much about the kingdom, keep in mind that in Jerusalem, the talk of the kingdom was like a, like a, like a brewing, frothing cauldron. They were debating it. They were researching it. They were talking about it. It was a hope of the Messianic kingdom. It ignited debate by the disciples, by uh, the Jewish leaders, by the people. Jesus' own disciples were expecting this kingdom to come until the last day Jesus was on earth. The disciples, along with their fellow Jews, Anticipated the kingdom coming quickly, coming all at once, coming with immediate success, and being plainly visible. But they had not read the Old Testament prophets correctly. They had misread the signs. They did not discern how God will work in the world. And Jesus corrects this right here and now, even though they still didn't get it. The coming of the kingdom is unlike anything you anticipated. And so he uses two everyday common kitchen, you know, backyard pictures. And he says four things about the inevitability of the kingdom's success. One, it will have small beginnings. Two, it will be hidden. Three, it will be extensive. And four, it will be intensive. Let me explain these briefly. First, the kingdom will have a small beginning. He likens the kingdom to a mustard seed. See, we see it it's small, proverbally, the smallest seed there sitting on the on a on a fingertip. Meaning there is nothing to indicate this kingdom's greatness in the beginning. It has the smallest of beginnings, and there is nothing impressive about it, as gauged by the world. Secondly, it was hidden. This text uses leaven. It's the same thing as yeast. Here we see a picture uh, see that image next. And this website describes exactly how yeast works. Yeast is the driving force behind fermentation, the magical process, that allows a dense mass of dough. To become a well-risen loaf of bread and yet yeast is nothing more than a single-celled fungus yeast introduced into the flour is barely detectable its impact is gradual not all at once it is not plainly visible it works in a hidden way meaning the kingdom will not always or rarely be recognized By the world for what it truly is the righteousness of its members will not be understood or appreciated and those who resist God's purposes will not be stopped or swallowed up all at once thirdly the kingdom is extensive meaning it extends out see how the smallest seed will grow into a great tree it is so big It'll provide protective shelter for birds. It becomes a refuge. The kingdom, Jesus is saying, will extend to the whole world. And yet at the same time, it'll provide care and protection for its smallest and most vulnerable members. This is the extensiveness of the kingdom of God. And I'm going to take a little break here for a minute and a half. And I'd like you to see a video All right, you have to ignore the sounds a little messed up, but the images are not. This video captures the expansion of the Christian faith throughout its 2,000-year history, and so you'll see the main image will be just watching the globe and watching the expansion of the Christian faith. But two other things you have to take note of: in the uh, left, what will be your left-hand right left-hand corner will be a color index showing you the Christian faith along with other of its supposed rivals. And then up in the left-hand corner, you'll see the years go by very quickly. So enjoy this. It shows the meaning of this parable in visual form. This captures visually 2,000 years of history. All that white you saw was from one tiny mustard seed. One tiny mustard seed. So the kingdom of God is extensive. Fourthly, the kingdom of God is intensive. Like yeast or like leaven, it penetrates, it permeates, it envelops, it does not leave what it touches empty, half-filled, or shallow but fills everything everywhere it is in all and it is all jesus is saying the kingdom will fill the earth and yet not in a way that we expect now the point of these pictures the leaven or yeast and the mustard seed is are not as much about how the kingdom grows But the main point is the remarkable contrast from the beginning to the end. The kingdom has a small, improbable, and inglorious beginning. Really? What could a Galilean carpenter and a dozen Jews really expect to accomplish? But what will happen in the end will be unexpected, unimaginable, glorious, and a smashing success. So the ongoing crowd who had witnessed this miracle in verse 17, the people who were rejoicing in what Jesus had said and done, Jesus is saying, yes, your joy and all is well grounded in reality. This will happen. And this is the second point. Not only the power of the kingdom, but the inevitability of its success. So before we leave this morning, we're going to celebrate communion here in a few moments. Let me just make four points as to apply this talk, apply the words of Jesus. Here's the first point. Don't confuse kingdom success. Don't confuse kingdom success. Ever since in the fourth Century when the Roman Emperor Constantine declared the Christian faith to be the official faith of the Roman Empire, ever since then, the church and Christians have struggled with what is our true identity. And the church has been tempted to think that these parables create a call to exercise power in the same way that the world does. And they don't do that. I love what Daryl Bach commentator on Luke said this. Daryl Bach said the crucial point about growth, the growth that's indicated here in these kingdom parables, the crucial point about growth is not numbers in the church or power in the culture, but a declaration about the protective presence of a caring God. So This is number one. Don't confuse what kingdom success is. Number two, Two or let me just say this kingdom success what is kingdom success remember the kingdom of god is bigger than the church it includes the church but the kingdom of god is bigger than the church it's wherever the people of god gather and allow jesus to rule and reign in their hearts the kingdom is a called out group of people allowing jesus to shape their lives living in conformity to his values being a faithful witness to our neighbors, caring for the least of these. This is the success of the kingdom. And I want to tell you something, Linworth. The recent examples around here that I have seen of this, and I speak for myself and my other, the other pastors, because there's, a lot, there's some stories here that just, you can't tell from the stage, but I want to tell you, some of you just blow us away. You do things, you reach out to people that you know you're not going to get paid back. You know few people, if any, are going to notice it. And you're motivated solely by the grace that Jesus has poured into your life. And you're sacrificing time and money. Nobody's aware of it. I mean, that's the stuff that proves Jesus is getting a hold of our hearts. That's the kingdom stuff. And I'm so proud of so many of you. So proud. That's the success of the kingdom. And I'll say something else. According to Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, there'll be a day when your righteousness will be revealed. There will be a day when your righteousness will be revealed. Secondly, doubt your doubts. Apply this phrase in a new way. Doubt your doubts. We've been talking corporately, but I think you can also apply these parables individually to your own spiritual growth. And when your own spiritual growth feels impossible, when you've grown impatient with the pace of your change, when the church corporately feels impotent against the entities that resist God, borrowing a little bit from Hamilton, when the church is out-resourced, out-manned, out-gunned, out-planned, When you feel like the world is spinning out of control, you might be tempted to doubt the power of the gospel to change your life or to change this world. Jesus demonstrates in this healing and teaches through His words that your doubts lack a foundation. Doubt your doubts. You know, the very first thing a good coach of a sports team must do he or she before any physical training before any tactical training before any skill set formation good coaches understand the very first thing to affect is the belief system of the players the attitude the creation of a belief that uh, creation of a belief that they can win and they will win Jesus here defines the win in the kingdom of God and He ensures its success. Belief is the first thing, so doubt your doubts. Thirdly, you might be small, but you are not insignificant. As my friend Doug Brown says, you might be small, but you are not insignificant. If you think you are too small to be effective, You have never been in bed with a mosquito. (laughs) Or consider the butterfly effect. One scientist said that even a butterfly moving its wings has an effect on galaxies thousands of light years away. Take a look at this next image, if you would. Do you know what that is? Yeah, a lot of you know what this is. It's a, it's a landing craft vehicle personnel, an LVCP. But do you know the rest of the story? <laughs> You've seen them on World War II movies, transporting soldiers from large Navy ships onto the beaches of northern France on D-Day. Dwight Eisenhower said of the man who designed these, Andrew Jackson Higgins, love that name, Andrew Jackson Higgins, who never set foot on a Normandy beach, never commanded a single troop, and never wore a uniform, Eisenhower said of him, Higgins is the man who won the war for us. You see, what is even more amazing is that Higgins did this. He designed the LVCPs without any request from the military and by actually pushing against the wishes of the Navy who were only interested in larger vessels like destroyers and battleships. Higgins saw what the Navy could not see, that after crossing the English Channel, the Navy would not be able to get troops close enough to the shore. You might be small, but you are not. As a believer in Jesus, you are not insignificant. I like the way Francis Schaefer said it. There are no little people in the kingdom of God. There are no little people. And finally, the fourth point from this text is to praise Jesus as the victor. Praise Jesus as the victor. Did Jesus die for your sins individually to forgive you? Did he pay your personal penalty, absorbing? Your punishment to relieve the debt that you owed God? Yes. And we praise Him for it. But Jesus also took unto Himself on the cross the full force of evil and Satan's power. The evil that would create concentration camps. The evil that would abuse little children and secret places, the evil that would bring rape and horror and dismay, the full force of evil and Satan's power and fury and rage and rebellion, he took on his person on the cross. And in doing so, according to the Scriptures, he actually stole victory away from Satan in this cosmic struggle. Paul says in Colossians that through his death, he disarmed these spiritual rulers and powers, making a public spectacle of them, putting them to open shame. No longer can Satan bring a just, a just sentence of death and condemnation to anyone who is hidden in Jesus, to anyone who places their faith in Jesus no longer can Satan rightly accuse the son or daughter of God who has given up their own resistance and has bowed their knee to Jesus Satan was defeated on that day you know the cross and the resurrection of Jesus the ascension of Jesus that was Satan's D-Day it was the beginning of his end he still puts up a fight to be sure. There is still much to clean up before V-Day happens. Our V-Day when the second advent takes place, when Christ returns. But His authority and His power were dealt a death blow. And now when you and me follow Jesus, when we follow Jesus in saying to us, go and make disciples of all the nations, we are joining with Him to take back what is rightly His. Today I hope that we can all with a fresh heart and with fresh eyes, with our doubts doubted, (laughs) with the accusations and the condemnation removed, that Jesus Christ can touch and heal our bent-up, suffocating, chronic pain inside of us and set us free to go with Him wherever He leads to take back what is His. Pray with me. Father, thank You this morning for everything For that Christ has our victor did. And we praise You, Father, for He is our champion and our hero who not only forgives our individual sins but dealt a blow to evil. We thank You that righteousness is not only a noun but a verb, Father. That You are working righteousness in our world. You will make all things new. You will restore what was lost. You are the victor, Jesus Christ. And we praise You for it. And I pray, Father, for here, anyone this morning who has never placed their faith in You, who is under the illusion that they can live life without the resources You provide. Father, today, might they invite You into their heart and their life. And Father, for the believer who is suffocating and bent over, struggling and with chronic pain, who needs to be set free this morning. Father, just as Jesus touched that woman, just as Jesus assaulted the power of Satan aggressively, Father, today will you touch and heal any man or woman in this room that is bent over, that is fighting to get a breath, And heal them. Heal them, Father. Call them a son of Abraham. Call them a daughter of Abraham. Call them a son of God. Call them a daughter of God. Made righteous not through their effort, but made righteous and blameless and holy through what Christ accomplished when He became our victor on the cross. To Him is all the glory To Him is all the praise forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.